This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to the sponsor of this week's episode, Who Gives a Crap? No, really, though. That's the name of the company, Who Gives a Crap? Who Gives a Crap began when its Australian founders learned that 2.3 billion people across the world don't have access to a toilet. That's roughly 40% of the global population and means that around 289,000 children under five die every day from diarrheal diseases caused by poor water and sanitation. So they did what anyone would do in this situation and started a toilet paper company. Yes, that's what they did. Not only do they make all of their products with environmentally friendly materials, but they also donate 50% of their profits to help build toilets and improve sanitation in the developing world. Who Gives a Crap is offering Sounds Good's listeners $10 off their first order with the promo code SOUNDSGOOD to get toilet paper delivered to your door make a difference in the world, and support this podcast, just go to whogivesacrap.org slash soundsgood and use the discount code soundsgood. All one word. One more time, that is whogivesacrap.org slash soundsgood with the discount code soundsgood. Who gives a crap? Good for your bum, great for the world. All right, now here comes the show. One of my favorite things about my job here at Good 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 is that I'm supposed to discover inspiring people on a daily basis. Yes, that's a real thing, and I'm so grateful. I've always loved spending time paying attention to the stories of resilient human beings who are changing our world for the better. And this is something that I have in common with my podcast guest today, Grace Bonney. Grace is a writer and founder of Design Sponge, which launched in 2004 and attracts over 1 million readers per day. One of Grace's favorite parts of running the popular Design Sponge blog is discovering creative and inspiring women. In fact, her newest project, a magazine called Good Company, celebrates and strengthens this diverse community. She spent her life giving women a platform for the sake of making the art and design world more personal and accessible. I am so excited about this conversation, y'all. You're going to hear how Grace seeks to inspire women to follow their dreams, prioritize inclusion, and flood the market with women-owned businesses. Grace has been a featured guest on Good Morning America, The Nate Berkish Show, The Martha Stewart Show, and more. She's also written two best-selling books, and basically, she's a big deal. I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Grace is one of those people that you can't help but feel like you've been friends your whole life. She has this way of making a stranger feel seen, known, and heard. I'm so excited for you to learn from her journey today. So let's dive straight into the conversation. I just kind of want to start at the beginning and talk about the early stages of Design Sponge, because 
Design Sponge has been around for a long time now. And so I think there's probably a lot of people who have just come across it in recent years without necessarily knowing where it got its wings. And so how did you get started with Design Sponge? So it honestly kind of started as a a ways to an end that never actually happened. <laughs> I always <laughs> thought that I my goal was to write for a design magazine. That's all I ever wanted to do. I grew up loving design. I was a fine art major, um, and I always loved writing as well. And I knew I wasn't going to be a designer. And I, I just thought, okay, well, my goal is to somehow write these like long features on designers for magazines, but I didn't know how to do that. And I thought that maybe building the blog would be this kind of roundabout way to build an online portfolio and that maybe one day I would use that as a way to get a job because I didn't have traditional journalism training. And so the blog was really kind of a fun thing I did on the side of my day job. And it ended up becoming the magazine that that and now kind of a real magazine that I didn't know that I would ever have the option to do. And I ended up getting to write for design magazines at one point, but it was never my full-time job. And I always saw that as kind of the end all be all was to write for a print magazine. And then all of the dream magazines that I loved went under. And so it kind of forced me to reevaluate what was the the safe, sturdy job that I wanted. And it ended up being the blog, which I, I never really imagined. That's fascinating. And, and what year was that? That was 2004. Oh, wow. So you're kind of in those early days of the of the blogging world, um, and you're innovating. Like you're doing something that nobody era. else is doing. This is live journal. <laughs> this is oh, I, w- I was on um, Blogspot, like with the oh, polka dot background. That's amazing. I remember Blogspot. That's so good. Yeah, <laughs> but my understanding of blogs were like live journals, and you yeah. know, kind of that early era of personal blogging where everybody just talked about literally what they ate for breakfast. And so, you know, I, I never imagined that a blog could be a job. Yeah. What were you kind of dreaming up? as a child, you know, did you always know that you wanted to go the design route or were you always creative? What did that look like as a kid? It's, you know, I think looking back, I tend to have like, you know, hindsight vision with, with things. <laughs> but when I was younger, I had no idea. I mean, I, I played guitar and I loved Riot girl music and I wanted to be in a band, but never had the guts to do that. And so I ended up working in the music industry it was my first job was I worked for a, like a small independent record label in Brooklyn. And that's what took me back to the city and then ended up hating <laughs> everything about that job. And so I kind of went back to art and design, which had always been another love of mine. And that ended up being the place that I felt more comfortable. But I think, I think, you know, looking back, I loved writing and my, my parents gave me like a small old schooly um, typewriter as like a gift when I was little. And I used to write like pretend books and pretend newspapers. So I think I've always just enjoyed really creating content and not having a boss. So, so I think I've, I found a way to do that. And it's remarkable too that your parents kind of encouraged you on that journey to begin that. That's really amazing that you just you had kind of a, a little bit of a, a nudge in the right direction and then another platform came your way and another platform and it led to what you've created today. Yeah. I mean, I was an only child, so I, th- I think it was a very qu- a quiet activity <laughs> for my parents to give me uh, to sort of keep me busy. But that's just always been what I've enjoyed doing. And I still like creating content of some sort is still my favorite thing to do. Like I don't enjoy the business or ad sales or any of that sort of part of my job. I mean, they're a necessary part of the work, but I I really just like sitting down and talking to people. Okay. So how long did it take for Design Sponge to kind of start picking up momentum? You know, because I know in those early days, it probably really felt just like a personal project. And then at one point you look around and you're like, oh, this is this is actually blowing up. Like people are showing up to see this. 
Yeah, you know, I think that the the Design Sponge and a few other blogs of that era, like Apartment Therapy and Moco Loco, I think we had this very rare experience of kind of blowing up very quickly because there weren't that many other blogs around. Like, I, I mean, there were literally a handful of art and design blogs around in 2004. Um, and so I think that we all kind of, we were the only people to write about when people wrote stories. So <laughs> I think maybe four months into starting Design Sponge, uh, Maxwell from Apartment Therapy, and Harry from Moco Loco and myself got written about in the New York Times. And, you know, I went from having maybe a few thousand readers a day to having like 10,000 readers a day overnight. And that that doesn't really happen in the same way anymore because of how dense the community is now, which is great. Um, but we really benefited for sure from being kind of part of a small pack of people who started early. And I, I don't think any of us ever thought it would be a job. But I, I do think that when that initial boom happened, we all had a moment of like, oh, th- this this could be something. When you first started out, you know, it really was this personal project. But now when I look at Design Sponge and everything else that you've created, it has a lot of meaning and purpose baked into it. It's a lot of intentionality on what kind of impact you want to have. Did you have that intentionality from the very beginning? Or is that something that you kind of have to, I guess, decide on, you know, once you realize that you have an opportunity to do that? It's definitely something that grew with me over time. I mean, as as I started, my only intention was to try to get a job one day. I mean, I didn't know anybody would ever read the site. I just thought it was a way to apply to be, you know, a regular bottom of the rung staff writer at a magazine one day. So I, I didn't really get intentional about things and probably till I would say like 2007 or 2008. So three or four years into blogging when I started to realize why I wanted to keep doing it and why I was choosing to stay at my own blog versus go write for magazines because I enjoyed being able to focus on things that I felt were underrepresented in design media. And then as I've kind of grown up, I mean, with the blog, I mean, I was what 23 when I started it and I'll be 37 this summer. So you know, I've really grown and changed as a person and so is the site. And every year I have to ask myself, do I need to do this anymore? Like, what is the point of being here? Because I don't want to run a platform just to run a platform. Like, there are plenty of other people who have really important things to say. And if I don't have something important that I want to do, I don't want to take up space. So every year I re-ask myself that question and then try to figure out, you know, is the blog the platform for that? Is it a book? Is it a magazine? Is it a podcast? You know, what is the best medium for the goal of this year? And that's kind of what keeps me going at this point every year now. That's so wise. I love that idea of kind of reevaluating every year. And, you know, just because you have a blog that lots of people are showing up at doesn't mean that that's always going to be the best way to reach people. And I think you did such a, I can almost see evidence of you being intentional about that with your second book that you published in the company of women. And no joke, every single time I'm at a small bookstore and I come across this book, I just have to pick it up. I'm like drawn to it. And it's so beautiful and so interesting when you dive into it. And I think that it's a really meaningful, intentional book. Do you feel like that was one of your early kind of pivots into, you know, creating something meaningful that was outside of, you know, the traditional internet space? It was the end result of a process that began in 2008, but it was the most intentional of those processes. So in 2008, I was realizing that personally, I was like very unfulfilled by just writing about furniture and pillows and stuff like that. I wanted to talk to the people who made those things. And the more I spent time with women in particular who were working in design, I realized how many 
sort of pain points there were with women getting their businesses open or figuring out, you know, all the different things you need to know to start a business. And that turned into kind of a hangout session with friends in Brooklyn over wine and cheese. And I talked about it on Design Sponge and was overwhelmed by requests from people to say, well, would you please put this together in our town? Like we need in-person support systems. So in 2008, I started what I called the Biz Lady series, and I just self-funded a tour to, I think, nine different cities across the U.S., and I collected you know, women who were professionals, whether they were lawyers or financial advisors or marketing experts, and it was a free event for any woman who wanted to run a creative business to come and get information. And that was the first moment where I was like, okay, there's another aspect of my work that I can explore that feels purposeful and that I really enjoy and that allows me to talk to people in person. And that series turned into a column on Design Sponge, which then turned into my podcast that I ran for two years called After the Jump. Um, and then After the Jump, when that ended in, I guess, 2013, that was essentially when I started pitching the idea for In the Company of Women, because I wanted those conversations to keep going. But I had recognized that I made a lot of mistakes with the podcast, and I was kind of interviewing very similar people over and over again. And I wanted to just try to not only fix that that mistake that I had made, but also just kind of contribute something to the world of business books that was more inclusive and more intersectional. So the book was a very, very intentional choice. Wow. Tell me more about that process of realizing that you were maybe interviewing the same kind of people over and over again. What did that look like and, and what kind of opened up your eyes to the change you wanted to make? I mean, it's it's always reader feedback. It's always people either yelling at me or politely telling me that I'm doing something wrong. And that's that's just a big part of being a blogger is you're you're very open and very public. And for most of us, we welcome that feedback. And so throughout the course of, I would say, the last year of running the podcast, I kept getting comments from people who were like, you know, you're having a round panel discussion and why is everybody on that panel white or is why everybody on that panel a woman or why is everybody, you know, why are there no queer people on the panel? And so that was kind of a big eye opener of like, I wasn't even including members of my own community at that point. And I was going to people that just kind of were off the top of my head. And then I had to really dive into, okay, why are these people always at the top of my mind? Like, why are the same people mm, the ones yeah. who get written about? And, and we all, especially white people in a very particular niche online, we all kind of think of the same 20 people when we think about one particular topic. And I had to really unpack that, unpack my own privilege and just all of my internal biases and just figure out ways to better myself and sort of the quality that of the product that I was offering people. And yeah. that, that basically involved me being quiet for two years and to stop yeah, you know, I, I stopped the podcast on purpose. Um, I primarily stopped it because I moved, but I also was like, I'm talking too much and I'm not listening enough. And so I just started listening to different communities that I was not a part of to just pay attention to what I had been missing out on, the work I needed to do to respectfully be a part of those communities, and just to better understand the issues that that weren't my own. And then that led me to the book. And when I went to pick people, I had a better idea of the people and the stories and the identities that I, I needed to represent. As you were saying all of that, it was fully resonating with me because when I started this podcast, you know, I just had a list of some people I knew who I knew would say yes to being on the show. And it wasn't until we were a few months into the show that I kind of looked and I realized that all of those faces kind of looked the same. And all of those stories were, were really similar. And uh, I had to kind of do some soul searching and ask myself, 
do I just know a certain kind of person? Am I just surrounding myself with people who look like me and have stories that look like mine? And so it it took that moment and, and, and some feedback too, like some feedback from our audience early on uh, before I really started to kind of create some shifts and changes in intentionality. And then it was really interesting actually because I feel like I've been really intentional about including people whose voices are are far different from my own on the show over the last year. But even just a few months ago, I got this review on Apple Podcasts, and the person who wrote this is probably listening, hey, and they basically said, hey, I want to see more people of color on the show. And at first, I was actually almost... I was taken aback and almost offended because I felt like I had done such a good job of bringing in more people of color and I was getting ready to screenshot it and tweet something. And and then I just took a breath and realized, hey, I think I've been doing a good job, but the reality is if people in these communities aren't feeling this, aren't noticing this, aren't feeling like I am doing a good enough job of inclusion, then I'm not, you know, and I need to listen to that and, you know, double down and work harder. And it's been really, really valuable and great getting to lean into that feedback and say, no, I want to learn even more and more and more from, you know, people in marginalized communities. And it's hard to take that feedback, but I think, I have found the show to be so much more fulfilling since I became intentional about that. And I know that I've seen some really, really great responses from other people who are excited to be learning since we made that change as well. Yes. And I think that, I I mean, one of the things that I hear when I talk to people about this topic is that I think mostly white people in particular are are nervous to make that change or to to say the wrong things or to it, just to admit that that's been something that's problematic. And I, yeah, think, I yeah. think part of the learning process is just owning, yeah, like you might have to apologize. You might have some ground to make up. You might have a lot of ground to make up. And that's okay. It's It's better than not making up the ground. And it's better than you know, not trying, I I think we're just also used to talking, we're used to having platforms and access and resources to, you know, start our own blog, start our own podcast, start our own video series, whatever it is. And I think we're not used to sitting back and listening. And so I think for me, when people ask me a lot, like, well, how do I do that? How do I find those people? And the answer is always just simple. It's just, you know, pay attention, follow different people and start listening. And I think that's just, that's not something we're all used to, especially of a certain generation where, you know, every possible publishing platform is at our fingertips. So the idea of stopping and listening first before starting something just feels totally foreign. So I think it's it's a learning process, but a really important one. And I think it's beautiful seeing you modeling that listening, because I know for me, I never would have taken that intentionality on this show or anything else I'm doing without seeing other people modeling how to do that first. And so I have no doubt that there are people who are following you, following the blog, who are seeing you listen and become intentional and own up to where you've fallen short in the past. And now that gives them not only courage, but almost like a, a guide to understand how they can follow in your steps in whatever work they're doing. And I think you did such a 
great job of that, especially in the company of women, because it it's really representative and, and it helps you just kind of understand this greater context of, you know, women who are doing things in the world. It's beautiful. Thanks. Thanks so much. It was a really meaningful project to put together. And it's been it's been even more interesting and more challenging to turn it into a magazine now. But just keeping that process going and being intentional with it has it's really changed my life and the way that I view not just work, but just everything in my life. Tell me about your newest project, the magazine you started inspired by in the company of women. It's called Good Company. And I actually got a copy before it came out. I know you guys came out just a few weeks ago. And it is so good. I am loving this. I have it right here with me. It's beautiful. And I couldn't even like read all of it before we did the conversation. And that's what I like. I love how dense it is that I can keep on reading this over time. Anyway, I love it. Tell me a little bit more about your newest project. Sure. Thank you. So Good Company is, it's going to be a biannual, I'm calling it kind of like a bookazine because it's it's yeah. super dense, like you mentioned. And I'm somebody that if I'm going to take printed pages and ask people to pay for them, I really want to make sure that I over deliver in terms of what you're getting for that money, because most of my audience is not used to paying for the content that we produce. So I try to make sure that this is stuff that is really like packed with usable information and inspiration. And so I wanted that to continue. And I loved the book. And my publisher came to me and said, all right, book two, where do we start? And I was like, I don't think book two is a book. I think it's something that happens more regularly because I don't want to wait another two years to talk about 100 people. And so we started playing around with the idea of like, how could we publish something that was like a magazine that lived on magazine stands and on bookstores, but was just more substantive. And, you know, I dove into it the same way I dive into everything, which is without knowing anything and just making a huge list of what I want to do. And we managed to pull it off. But I, I learned a lot in that first issue process and basically made every possible mistake I could have made <laughs> times a million. Um, so the second issue, which I'm finishing up now, um, is was a lot, a lot more streamlined. But it's it continues the conversations of the book. It's it's highlighting people who run creative businesses or creative practices, and each issue has a theme. And the first one was very intentional. It's about community, and it's about all of the ways in which we find our communities, how we define them, how they support us, or what the challenges are within those communities, and how to better support each other. Um, because so often, I think it's very easy to fall into essentially kind of clicks based on certain identity factors or types of businesses that we run. And I really want to work on making those walls a bit more permeable and connecting with each other and figuring out how we listen more and support each other. So this first issue tells, I think, 27 different stories with about 75 different people contributing, talking about everything from how to get over creative blocks to how to actually intentionally create a community that means something to you. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you were also asking questions like, how do you use your platform and voice online and offline to affect change in your community? Or why is it important for your community to talk about mental health? Like these are things that I don't see people talking about all that often, but they are the things that I know in my communities, those are the conversations we're having. Those are the things that we're interested in. And I think they make communities stronger. And so I can see the intentionality all throughout this magazine. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad that comes through. I mean, that mental health in particular was really important for me to discuss because it's something that I think all of us deal with in one way or another. And it sometimes gets kind of commodified into this world of self-care and like yoga and green juices and stuff like that. And I think that mental health is a lot more nuanced than that. And I don't 
I don't want it to be this kind of catchy buzz topic that we talk about on a surface level. Like I really want to talk about how it manifests in life. And so we have an essay by Heather Barrymore where she talks about having essentially a mental breakdown at work and how that kind of led her to understand how important it is to disclose mental health issues with employers because we can't support each other if we're not open about the challenges we're dealing with. And so, and we provide a huge range of everything from phone apps to in-person groups that provide support for mental health and help with disclosing to employers and friends and communities. And I wanted to just be really practical and say, let's actually talk about this stuff. Let's not just turn it into, you know, a catchy badge that you like put onto your jacket. Let's actually talk about how these things affect us in real life. Do you mind if I ask about what your mental health journey has looked like? Sure. So, I mean, I've I've been through a lot in the last few years in particular, and I think depression is something that runs in my family and is something that I've always dealt with kind of on and off. And I'm not somebody who um, who is currently medicated for that, but I'm somebody who talks to a therapist every week, and that's the most important thing that I invest in for my mental health. And so good. I know it's not something that I'll be able to invest in for my entire life, but I know currently it's something that, it, that is very important and very stabilizing for me. So I wanted to talk about that and kind of the inherent privileges that exist in being able to treat or deal with mental health issues sometimes. So we, we get into that in the issue and we get into all the different kind of intersectional ways that mental health affects us, whether you're a person of color and the different the ways that different communities of color treat and handle mental illness or whether you're somebody who's queer and how that affects it. And so we really just kind of wanted to dive into all these different aspects and hopefully just give people a moment of representation to say, oh, that's me. Like, I know what that feels like to be someone from a Muslim community and deal with this particular religious issue attached to this, or, you know, to be someone who is trans or someone who's disabled and all the different ways those intersect with mental health. And so we, we did our best to try to provide a wide range of ways to sort of enter that discussion and kind of get into more nitty gritty stuff. The whole magazine comes across as really empathetic to that. And, and I can hear the way that your own mental health journey has kind of played into that empathy in that section for, you know, other aspects of the magazine, you know, especially when you're when you're featuring conversations or highlighting people who are in communities that you aren't a part of. How do you create that sense of empathy without actually getting to live other people's experiences? And how do you kind of support that and make people feel included, you know, with that, without you actually getting to be completely inside of their circles? Yeah, that's such a good and important question. Um, I, I think it always comes back to listening for me because, you know, I'm, you know, we, we have a discussion about, about the trans community and mental health in the book, and I'm part of the LGBTQ community, but I'm not trans identified. And so I can have what I think is an understanding of what some of the primary issues might be, but I'm not going to know those without talking to somebody who's a part of that community. And so I think the first thing to do is to just listen to people who are a part of those communities that you are not a part of and listen to what they're talking about to understand that no community is a monolith and there's not one person or one point of view that will fully reflect what that experience is. And so it's difficult because when you're doing roundtable discussions like we do in the magazine, you know, there are several people talking, but, you know, just because there's a single trans person discussing something, that doesn't mean that is the one defined opinion on being a trans person living with a mental illness. So I think it's important to just keep having these discussions and to keep bringing them up so that different points of view can yeah. be expressed because it's it's so easy editorially to want to like, 
pull that all into a nice clean pull quote and make it simple. But that's that's not how real life works. So I think the more work that I do, the more I realize that it's just all about nuance and it's all about continuing to talk so that more and more points of view are reflected. For people who, you know, they want to listen to people in communities outside of their own, but maybe don't have a huge audience online to pull from, you know, how would you recommend that somebody start, let's say, for example, you know, for people, though, who who don't necessarily have a person who's trans in their life, you know, what would be a great step for them to be able to listen without necessarily having that immediately? Yes, it is social media. Um, the, the easiest way, I think, to start listening and paying attention is to find people on social media who are a part of these communities, follow them, support their projects, buy their books, listen to their podcasts, listen, you know, you know, subscribe to their tiny letters, whatever it is, pay attention to the narratives that are coming out. And I think that, you know, if we're talking about the trans community, there's a number of activists to follow. You can follow at any of the sort of the larger trans support groups like on Twitter or saying on Instagram and start paying attention to who they're calling out, who they are mentioning in their posts, follow those people, see who they follow. I mean, it's always that kind of chain ladder of who do they follow and then who are they talking about? And I just click follow over and over and over again. And I pay attention to what they're saying because it helps you get a sort of more fully formed view of some of the issues and things to think about. Because if you just follow one person or just talk to one person, you're only getting their point of view. And it's really important to listen to as many people as possible. Because, you know, when we talk about intersectionality so much these days, it's it's really about talking to people who are coming from different financial backgrounds, racial backgrounds, religious, all these different points of view affect your experience as a trans person or as a queer person or whatever. And so I just think it's important to find people and listen. And social media for me is the easiest and fastest way to do that. Um, and there are so many like great queer blogs from like Autostraddle to Out um, that that talk about these issues on the, on the daily. And you don't have to be queer to follow those blogs. So, you know, just start listening. You don't have to talk to be a part of a community. You just have to be an active listener. I think that's so good. And, you know, when I think about our podcast community, something that really defines our community for me is this idea of curiosity. So many of our conversations have centered around curiosity. And I love the idea that, you know, that's all that it takes to learn from other people and especially people who are different from you is just to have that genuine sense of, you know, wanting to know, wanting to understand, wanting to grasp, you know, more of the world and understand it because we only have our own perspectives. Uh, and that's, I think it's almost just exciting to think about all of the perspectives that we can learn from and kind of circling back to good company, you know, you have 75 women in here who, you know, have a very diverse background of uh, experiences and lived uh, life. And I think this is a really, really great resource. Tell me a little bit about the tour that you guys are doing around this, because I think it's another great example of representation and inclusivity. Absolutely. So sort of like the tour we did for In the Good or In the Company of Women, um, I'm going to be traveling to seven or eight different cities across the U.S. and putting together panel events. And half the panel is usually um, someone who's been a part of the magazine in some way. And the other half are just really outstanding members of the creative community from that city. And we're talking about community. So we're going to be getting together and talking about 
what community means to people, like very specific advice of how they built and found their own communities, how these very disparate communities can connect and help each other. And it's just kind of an open discussion. And the first tour was a very emotional event. I mean, almost everybody cried on the panel in some way. And I I think it's very important for women in particular. And um, the magazine is not just women, it's for non-binary people as well. And so the panels will kind of try to open up in that way to include more people in the discussion. But it's really important to have these places to have, you know, quote unquote, safe spaces to have conversations with communities that are, I think, actively and intentionally trying to better support each other. And for me, that's what these are. It's a way to take the conversation that happened in print and to open it up to a room of like 200 people and say, how do we support each other? How does that, what does that look like in our specific town, whether that's, you know, Kansas City or Athens, Georgia? Like, what does that mean in Georgia? Like, what does community mean here? What are the specific issues we face and how can we better support each other? So that's the goal of the conversation in all of these cities. And then we'll hit the road again in the fall to celebrate the second issue and do something similar. What do you think that a community could look like a year from now if they fully embrace the ideas that you're talking about in this tour and in the magazine? You know, what? where can things go? How can things become stronger and better? Oh, it's so much richer. I mean, I think about, I, th- I mean, I'm coming from a design background, so I'm always thinking about um, fabric. And so fabrics are made up of the warp and the weft, which are the two directions of fabric that makes up like, you know, a quilt or a sheet or something like that. They go in different directions. They're made of different fibers or different colors. And I just think about you know, a fabric and a textile gets really, really strong the more fibers that you add into it. And I keep thinking about how the design community and the design media world for so long has been this very patchy, very holy, very weak, um, you know, blanket that has not been supporting people. And I think the more stories, the more strands, the more people that we include, the stronger and the richer that gets. And that's been my experience of, of learning to listen more, to listen to different opinions. And, you know, it means that my life is fundamentally different. And that fabric of my life and work is fundamentally different, but it is so much better for it. And I didn't realize how much I was missing out on. And I think that that's, that's an a, a aspect I really try to remind people of is I, I think we already think like, oh, I'm, I'm living online. I, I have all these friends that I met through Instagram and it's great and everything's awesome. But it could be so much better. It could be so wonderful if you continue to expand that circle. Like the more curious you get, the more questions you ask, the more different points of view you include in your life, the richer your life gets. And I think everyone is better off and stronger for for getting to know and welcome and support people who are different than them. I think that's really, really beautiful. That I love that example of, you know, the fibers and fabrics and how it just, you know, we can make it stronger by just weaving in more and more unique fabrics into that. Um, something that I was thinking about in terms of diversity in thought and diversity in experiences is kind of one of the common criticisms of kind of this progressive idea of of bringing more diversity into our communities is this idea that that oftentimes we want to bring in diversity of experiences and, you know, diversity of cultures and diversity of uh, races, but we oftentimes neglect to bring in a diversity of uh, politics or a diversity of ethics. What would you say to that idea that, that maybe uh, sometimes we're, we're being really inclusive of people that we agree with, but we're not being as inclusive of people who maybe don't share our political party? 
It's an interesting and very nuanced question. It's one I think about a lot because it's a criticism that I get. And I think that it's not as simple as people want to lob at somebody. I think that politics are one thing. And I think social and religious beliefs are another. And I think they sometimes get lumped together in a way that's inaccurate. So, I mean, I'm in an interesting place with Design Sponge because Design Sponge has a very mixed audience politically. Everyone, I think people would assume that it's a much more liberal audience than it actually is, but it is not. The writing team happens to be a very liberal group, but the readers we have remind us on a daily basis that they are also not as liberal, which is totally fine. And I think political beliefs are one thing, but I think what we're seeing a lot of now with this kind of greater awakening of the you know white people in particular in America is this acknowledgement that some people's political beliefs are or their social beliefs are disguised as political beliefs and i think if you believe that another human being doesn't deserve the same rights as you you know doesn't deserve to live or be a valid human being i don't think that's political i think that is a, a sort of a deep ethical and social concern that for me is not about political inclusivity. I think that's about human rights. And I don't feel comfortable including people in a conversation if their fundamental belief is that my human rights are not equal to theirs or my existence is not equal to theirs. And I'm not going to ask people whose daily existences are threatened for being queer, for being black, for being Muslim, whatever it is that's their identifying factor that seems to be so problematic for a lot of people if they can't sit next to that person and feel safe, no, I don't I don't feel comfortable working to include them in a conversation. But that does not mean that there can't be conservative people or Republican people or libertarian people at events. It's it's so rarely actually about your political stance. It comes down to these issues of of just sort of social justice. And I think that's where things get really nuanced. And I'm always, my door is always open and I'm constantly having these conversations <laughs> and like my DMs and social media because I think a lot of times people want to say like, hey, I'm a conservative Republican and I follow your content, but I feel left out. And so I like to take those chances to talk to them and say, I hear you. Let let me know more about what you're feeling left out about so we can either, you know, improve the way that we're handling this or just better understand what you're actually feeling underneath that. And I think so often it comes down to religion and that's a really sticky thing for a lot of people. And I don't, I don't have the answer to that. And I'm trying to better incorporate different religious beliefs into the stories we tell on the sites, because I think we've kind of tried to avoid religion entirely as a way to avoid that controversy. But I think that's been perceived and felt as um, exclusion by a lot of people. And so I'm currently trying to find the right way to include those points of view without including them as I just want to include them as stories and identities and not as this is what we believe about XYZ. So it's something that's in the works. But I think that politics and social justice are very different. I love that it kind of comes back to this idea of curiosity again, where, you know, even if you're not necessarily going to agree with that other person, you're still asking that question and wanting to dive into the story more and at least understand why uh, there's a disagreement or why, you know, there's a perceived uh, lack of representation. And I, I think that's beautiful. And I think that's important. And it comes back to this idea again that, you know, in your community, you do want to have a safe space for people to be themselves so that they can create their businesses fully themselves and so that they can love the people around them fully themselves. And there's always opportunities to bring other people who, you know, outside of that circle in, uh, but you do want to do it with intentionality. And, you know, that's what I think 
in many ways this magazine is about is is the intentionality that goes into communities and allowing people to rethink, you know, how they can be intentional. And so I think you've done a masterful job. Thanks. It's it's a work in progress, but it's it's work that I really enjoy doing. I think is so worthwhile. Um, I think these conversations are they always come down to every human being wants to feel seen and heard. And I think that people like you and I, and anyone with a platform, we're in the position to be able to do that. We're in the position to be able to say, like, I hear you, I see you. I may not share your experience and your point of view, but but that's yours is equally valid, and I hear you. And I think that's work that's really difficult and really draining to do a lot of times. But it's it is so important, and I know that it's changed my job, which used to feel a little like fluffy. Like I used to feel like, oh, I don't do anything at Design Sponge. All I do is write about pillows and houses and the world is a mess and I'm not contributing anything important. And I've been able to finally find these connections between the creative community as a creative place and a creative community as a group of people who all have very different life experiences and being able to be curious about those and represent those stories better. And so I think being curious, like you said, and asking these questions, it lets you find deeper meaning in just about any community or field that you happen to work in. That is so beautiful. And and I, I want to wrap up on on one last question kind of along those lines. You know, for people who are listening and they feel like their job is their equivalent of feeling empty because it's just about pillows and not, you know, not going a level deeper, what would you encourage them to do to be able to take what they're doing and make it more important, even if that's a difficult journey? Um, you know, how can they step towards doing that? How can they step towards finding more value in the work that they're doing? I think the word that you said before of curious, being curious is the most important first step. I think whether that means you are looking into the experiences and the businesses and the stories of people who do what you do, but have different backgrounds or different identities, that's a great place to start. Or start being curious about where the things that you use in your business come from. I think a lot of people who are designers, whether it's fashion or furniture or products, we don't ask a lot about like, how was this made? How did this, you know, fabric that I got, how did it get produced? Who was making it? Were they paid fairly? What were, you know, what were the politics involved in getting it to my studio to work with? I think the more curious we become about all the things that allow us to do what we do, it's a really great entry point into finding these deeper issues. Because in the creative community in particular, you know, all of the goods that we work with, whether it's wood or plastic or glass, or fabric, all of these things are being typically produced by people who are not living the types of lives that we are so accustomed to living. And so I think that for the creative community in particular, getting curious about where we source our things and who the people who make them, who those people are, are they being paid fairly? What's their life like? Are they in a safe working environment? Just asking these questions and trying to learn more and and the deeper understanding, it comes from that investigation and that curiosity. And it doesn't mean that you have to you know, have the answer to whatever challenge you come across, but it's it's being curious. And I think the more curious we are without judging ourselves for not knowing the answers, the better off we are as a community because you don't have to know the answer. You just have to want to know more. Okay, isn't Grace the best? Her belief in the power of inclusivity, community, and embracing our differences is what makes her voice so important right now. I'm really challenged by this idea she talked about, that having curiosity without judging ourselves for not knowing the answers makes our communities better. 
If this conversation was your first introduction to Grace Bonney, you have to do a couple of things after listening to this episode. Number one, find Grace on social media at Design Sponge. She's totally worth the follow. Number two, check out Design Sponge. Dive around. I've spent so much time on that website. It's fantastic. And last but not least, go and pick up the first issue of Grace's new magazine, Good Company. It provides motivation, inspiration, practical advice, and a vital sense of connection and community for women and non-binary creatives at every stage of life. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around, listen to more episodes. If you like this episode, you'd also love my conversation with author and artist, one of my favorite people, Mira Lee Patel, as well as a journalist and storyteller I deeply admire, Noor Tagori. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karenbrock brings her A-game with production support. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good 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 CO. And I'm so excited to announce that just this last week, we printed the newest issue of the Good Newspaper, and we're going to be shipping it out really soon. I know that I'm probably not supposed to have favorite children, you guys, but this issue might just be my favorite one yet. It is so good. Some of my favorite pieces from this issue include a feature story on the secret underground railroad helping North Korean refugees escape inhumane conditions, articles about antidepressants, suicide rates dropping in Japan, and self-care. It also provides action steps on how to support restorative justice and holds beautiful work by all of our wonderful contributors like Kaylee Thompson, Judson Collier, Kara Sykes, Sammy Harvey, Adam JK, Brad Montague, and more. You're not going to want to miss this issue. You can subscribe to The Good Newspaper in the link in our show notes or just visit goodnewspaper.org. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Take Grace's advice and stay curious. Find the stories of people that do what you do that don't look like you and then lean into that necessary tension. Sound good? Sound good.